0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Swarfcast. Before we start, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, please rate it and write a review on your podcast app or tell somebody about it. It really makes a difference for
1: us and we'd appreciate it. Okay, on with the show. The hot hand, there's no real um, singular definition for it, but kind of when success leads to more success. That's the simplest way to put it. In basketball, and it's always been studied in basketball, it's when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot, and you feel more likely to make your next shot. You feel like you are on a roll. You are in the zone. You're on fire. But really, this is not just about basketball. It's about human behavior. Um, And like I said, I think that we are all familiar with this feeling of being on a roll those times when nothing can stop us. Um, And if we take advantage of those times, I've come to believe, uh, they can elevate our careers and they can kind of change our lives. This
0: is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my co-host Lloyd Graff. Our guest on the show today is Ben Cohen, sports writer for The Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. In the book, Ben analyzes many types of hot streaks, from basketball shooting streaks to stock picking streaks, even a streak of hit plays by William Shakespeare. Most people have had a moment in their lives where a string of successes have given them confidence that the next thing they try will also be successful. This book explores whether that belief is actually true. As a used machine tool dealer specializing in high production equipment, I've encountered plenty of fire-damaged machines. An average fire costs a business $300,000 to $500,000 and 6 to 8 weeks of lost production time. Installed on over 15,000 CNC machines, FireTrace protects shops running oil-based coolants by automatically detecting and suppressing fires within seconds. Firetrace systems are safe for people and machines because they use clean agents that leave no residue. The systems are compatible with all major machinery brands and can be installed within a few hours. For more details, go to www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. That's www.firetrace.com slash swarfcast. I am very happy to have Ben Cohen, NBA writer for the Wall Street Journal and author of the new book, The Hot Hand The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Welcome to the
1: podcast, Ben. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Thanks, guys.
2: So, you probably are wondering why somebody uh, that uh, does a blog for the machining industry is interested in having somebody who wrote a book about the hot hand.
1: I just thought it was my good looks and charm. Is there another reason?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've loved your writing uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and the topic, uh, the hot hand, intrigued me uh, greatly because being a student of basketball, a lover of basketball, I've always been enamored of guys like Steve Kerr or Steph Curry, or who could light it up and seemingly could hit six or seven or eight three-pointers out of 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I was expecting to read about in your book, and, but it's a lot more than that.
1: That's right. I mean, the people who have studied the hot hand for the last 35 years, they, they studied it through basketball, but really they studied it because they were looking at human behavior. They wanted to know how we make decisions and judgments. And it turns out that
2: basketball happens to be this wonderful excuse to explore the rest of the world. Yes. And you amplified uh, that story beautifully and bringing such a diverse group of people into the book that illustrated this issue of whether the hot hand exists. And we'll go into that a little later. But first, I'd love to know about your background, how you ended up at the Wall Street Journal. And how you ended up writing this book
1: sure so i um i always um knew i wanted to be a journalist and i was always obsessed with sports and um, i went to duke university and um, ended up getting an internship uh, in the wall street journal's sports section not long after the birth of the the wall street journal's sports section so we started around 2009 and i've been with the paper since 2010 and uh, in 2014 i wrote my first story about the hot hand this phenomenon Uh, i wrote another story in 2015 Um, about uh, a similar idea, some changes um, in this saga to understand this idea. And usually what happens um, once I think about a story and report a story and write a story and then publish that story is that I am sick of that story. But Mm -hmm. the opposite happened here. I wasn't um, exhausted. I was actually kind of invigorated. I couldn't get the hot hand out of my head. And um, I thought that it would be a very neat way to look at many industries beyond basketball. And there was a real narrative to be told here in which the characters were Nobel Prize winners and NBA superstars. And so once I decided that I would be really mad if someone else wrote this book instead of me, I thought that was a pretty good push. And um, and I've spent the last three or four years actually doing it.
0: Yeah, I can tell. It must have taken uh, a long time to put that together.
2: What was the the thing that intrigued you most as you did your research? Oh, that's
1: a good question. Um, I, I you know, honestly it was it was just the breath of stories that um, that sort of reflect and relate to the hot hand so i knew that um, it would be easy um, to find stories in basketball but i knew that um, the way to write this book is is to really apply it far beyond basketball Um, and i i thought that it would be hard to find those characters and it was but not because there weren't enough but because there were almost too many i mean you once you start looking for the hot hand you kind of bump into it anywhere you look and so i think Um, what surprised me was just how universal a phenomenon this is. I mean, I think we have all felt the hot hand and we have seen the hot hand and, and I think the hot hand sort of applies to every industry on earth and kind of touches all of us in some way.
0: All right, Ben, I want you to take it back first, give a summary to the people that haven't read the book, what the book is about. And then I want to hear about the moment when you thought about this book and when you thought of the idea.
1: Um, so The Hot Hand, uh, the, book, the, the book called The Hot Hand is actually, it turns out to be about The Hot Hand. And The Hot Hand, there's no real um, singular definition for it, but um, it's kind of when success leads to more success. That's the simplest way to put it. In basketball, and it's always been studied in basketball, it's when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot and you feel more likely to make your next shot. You feel like you are on a roll. You are in the zone. You're on fire. But really, this is not just about basketball. It's about human behavior. Um, And like I said, I think that we are all familiar with this feeling of being on a roll, those times when nothing can stop us. Um, And if we take advantage of those times, I've come to believe, uh, they can elevate our careers and they can kind of change our lives. So the first time I really thought about the hot hand for myself is when I felt it. Um, in high school, in a junior varsity basketball game about 20 years ago, um, I was, uh, by any objective measure, a terrible basketball player, and yet uh, guard a, or what, what I position? was a, a, a guard just because I'm short. I don't. I mean, somewhere between point guard and shooting guard, but really, just my position, was like bench warmer essentially. But, um, <laughs> but in one quarter of one game, I scored more points than I had in my entire career combined. I scored like 18 points in a quarter and um, I just couldn't miss everything I threw up went in. And um, I have this very clear memory of this very strange event in my life. But what I have found is that it's actually not all that strange. I think we all have a memory. Like that, whether it's in basketball or another sport, or simply like what happens at work. And so um, I, it had never occurred to me that what I felt that day might have been some sort of cognitive illusion. But once I read that paper um, while working on this story in 2014, it turned out that there was about 30 years of scientific literature about the hot hand of these brilliant psychologists and economists trying to figure out whether this phenomenon was real or if it was a cognitive bias, if it was our mind playing tricks on us.
0: How did it make you feel when you read Tversky's piece that said, "No, you know there's it's it's bs. this is all in your head. How did it make you feel?
1: It made me question everything I thought I knew, which is what was the power of this paper. It was so um, it was just so deliciously contrarian and counterintuitive. And in fact, when Red Auerbach was told of this paper, he just kind of sneered in disgust and he said like, so these guys make a study, I don't care, right? I mean, and the beautiful thing about this paper um, from a from a reporter standpoint is that um, it was so unbelievable that many people just refused to believe it. So if you are writing like a contrarian thing, you, you kind of want people to be like, even if this is true, I don't believe it. Like there's nothing that could be richer, right? Or 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 prove your point more. And so I think that all of us who disbelieved in this paper, including me, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think that only like contributed to the strength of, uh, of the finding and, and showed what a powerful and potentially costly illusion the hot hand can be.
2: Could you summarize the... Uh, the Gilovich Tversky paper.
1: Yeah, the hot hand does not exist. Really, is is the simplest summary. Um, it was this phenomenon that we all believe. In fact, they they poll um, basketball players and students in this paper, and and like overwhelmingly, they believe in the hot hand and the importance of the hot hand. And yet, just because you believe in it, doesn't actually make it true and once they were able to look in the best data available at the time they found that there was no evidence to support this notion of the hot hand that we were all convinced of
2: and this is this was the popular wisdom uh, for a long time but daryl morey didn't believe it
1: uh, yeah i think well uh, you know i i don't know about daryl um, personally but um, this it, it's sort of um, this this counterintuitive pearl of wisdom sort of became a conventional wisdom over time over about 35 years because it was this classic paper in the canon of behavioral economics really um and for good reason like it's a really admirable paper i i still find it um so smart and 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 so like amazingly counterintuitive and the people who wrote it are some of the great psychologists um of their generation and really of all time i mean you know amos Tversky is this brilliant figure this towering force in in academic psychology
0: Tell people who Tversky and Kahneman are.
1: Yeah. Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics um, a few years ago. And Amos Tversky was his intellectual collaborator and and partner, really. And um, they really pioneered or or revolutionized this field of judgment and decision making, how we use our minds, essentially. There's this brilliant Michael Lewis book about them that came out a few years ago called The Undoing Project. but, and, and Danny Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, is, is sort of in this same vein. Um, they, uh, th- there's no one in psychology or really, you know, in economics now who were more influential than these two guys. And so, it's, it was kind of astonishing to me that Amos Tversky was one of the people on this hot hand paper. It just sort of shows um, what a powerful force this idea can be and why it's so compelling to so many people. Like, these weren't just any ordinary researchers who were looking at this basketball phenomenon. It was Amos diversity.
2: I certainly believed in it. I just have to bring in a little anecdote of my life. Like you, Ben, I was a sports editor of my college, which was the University of Michigan. I was a sports editor in 1966. So I go back a ways. Uh, In 1965, I was covering... The NCAA tournament, Michigan was one of the four finalists in Portland, Oregon. And so I went out to Portland with the team. Michigan made the finals against UCLA. But uh, the preliminary game for third place was Princeton with Bill Bradley against Wichita State. So I'm watching this game and I'm sitting right behind Bill Van Bredeckhoff, the coach at Princeton. And I'm watching Bill Bradley, and he's going nuts in this game. He is the classic hot hand in this game. And Bradley, in the first half, he's got like 25 points. And Van Bredikoff is playing his usual offense. And I'm tapping Van Bredekoff on the shoulder and saying, Bill has 25 points <laughs> in 20 minutes. Get the ball to Bill. And Van Bredikoff shouts, get the ball to Bill. Get the ball to Bill. And of course, Bill hits a two-pointer. And then he's got 30 points. got 35 points. Finally, late in the game, I again, I tap him on the shoulder. I said, the record in the NCAA tournament is 52. Bill's got 48. Get the ball to Bill. He shouts out, get the ball to Bill. Get the ball to Bill. Of course, Bradley ends up with 56 points in the game. Sets a record that still hasn't been broken in the NCAA tournament. And
0: you're responsible. You're like 98% responsible for that.
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) So since then, I've definitely been a believer in the hot hand.
1: (laughs) It sounds like you were a believer in the hot hand during that game.
2: Oh, definitely. I played basketball, too, in high school. I thought maybe I was going to make the Michigan team until I saw who was on the Michigan team. (laughs)
0: Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.g-r-a-f-f-p-i-n-k-e-r-t.com. Ben, you know, you bring up a lot of examples in the book uh, talking about how, you know, William Shakespeare had the hot hand, how, you know, Wall Street people have the hot hand. Explain the springboard to that. And then I think also just because of the ridiculous time we're in as we're all marooned because of a plague, uh, I want you to talk about the William Shakespeare part of the book.
1: Sure, so um, you know my, my thought in writing this book is that um, the hot hand is not just in basketball, uh, but really what it is is it's this collision of talent and and circumstance and a little bit of luck. and we never quite know when circumstance is going to strike. In fact, it can come in very unexpected times, and that sort of leads us to Shakespeare. Shakespeare was never um, a metronomic writer. He ran hot and cold, he wrote. In streaks. And the greatest hot streak of his career was when he wrote uh, King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra in a very, very short amount of time. Some people believe as little as two months. And the question is, what changed? Like, was it Shakespeare? Was it the world around him? I think it was actually both. But really, what changed in the world is that he wrote these plays during a plague year. The plague was sort of like Shakespeare's secret weapon. The plague was a constant presence in Shakespeare's life. It was the single most powerful force in, in shaping his life and his career. He probably should have died of plague when he was an infant. In fact, his, uh, his parents actually lost two children uh, before he was born. Um, the plague plays this incredibly important role in Romeo and Juliet. In fact, you could argue it's the most important character. Uh, it is what turns the most famous love story ever told into a tragedy. And then he's able to capitalize on the plague again in 1606, when he had gone two years without writing a play, and then he premieres three in the course of two months. And it, to me, was this really powerful example that we never quite know when the hot hand is possible, uh, or where, or how, or why. Sometimes it's the plague. And so um, I do think that, like, in this very strange period we are in right now, I'm not saying that anyone should go and try to write King Lear, obviously, but I do think there will be some great unexpected art uh, that comes from this. And, and not just art, I mean, productivity generally. Um, you know, sometimes um, circumstance like happens. Uh, you know, you, you would never expect the plague to be this force that allows us um, to, 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 to have these plays that we're still reading 400 years later. And yet it kind of was,
0: as I remember in the book, uh, you said that the plague killed all the young people and maybe killed some of the other writers. So the young people who didn't really like his plays that much, they weren't around. And so he could entertain the old people. Is that what happened?
1: It killed off some of the competition in that um, the most um, popular form of entertainment at the time was satires starring children, and <laughs> Shakespeare really wrote tragedies starring adults. And so suddenly there were just more resources available to him, and theater goers were in a state where they kind of wanted to hear um, his type of work and go see his type of work. At it, you know, the world was kind of changing before, and then it turned back into his favor. And I think that's what happens. I mean, I think that um, evolution occurs, right? And and sometimes um, we have to adapt and sometimes the world adapts for us. It's just important to be able to recognize when these circumstances do break our way and put ourselves in a position to take advantage and capitalize.
2: I was shocked in a way when I heard the chapter that you did on Raoul Wallenberg. Hmm. This uh, it stunned me that this was right in the middle of your book that you spend a whole chapter.
0: Who's Wallenberg? For those for those of us that are that are less
2: literate, tell us about Raoul Wallenberg and why you included him in the story of streaks.
1: Yeah, I mean it's um it it he does not have a, a a direct relationship to the hot hand but I do think that his um the lessons of his story um sort of uh, uh reflect the lessons um in this like fascinating saga of this idea. So Ralph Wallenberg is like one of the great um heroes of the 20th century. I mean, he is credited with saving about 100,000 Jews during the Holocaust. He was not Jewish. He was um, uh, uh, Swedish and came from this um, aristocratic Swedish family, but um, went through this like superhuman um, run at the end of uh, World War II in which he just did things that uh, were just incredibly... Heroic. I mean, I think there are very few people who have done so much good for humanity in so little time. And yet, um, right after the war was over, he disappeared in Russia and no one knew what happened to him. People have been looking for him ever since. And it's been this great mystery. Yeah. And um, really, the reason it's in this this book is because there are um, two researchers uh, one um, uh, molecular biologist named Marvin Makinen, and another who um, was this young baseball researcher at the time named Ari Kaplan, who Teamed up and and they went looking for Wallenberg as as part of a greater um, team uh, that has try, tried to find the truth about what really happened to him and they were able to to make really um, interesting advances and and huge strides in understanding what happened to Wallenberg based on um, compiling this data that no one had ever seen before and. This data sort of told them something that it had never said before, and that's 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 the the connection really with the hot hand. There are certain things that we have always thought to be true about the hot hand, but we can never really know for sure because we didn't have the data. and um, And I would encourage everyone to to, to read the book, um, especially for the Wallenberg chapter, which I think is really you know it's just a remarkable story and it was a real um privilege for me to write it and in fact when i when i stumbled across it um there's like i said there's no like obvious connection to the hot hand but i just i thought it was really important to shoehorn that story into the book because um it was just irresistible i mean it's just a really it's a really amazing story
2: well it reminded me a little bit of uh, the undoing project where the book really wasn't about uh, the NBA and Daryl Morey. But <laughs> Michael Lewis put the big chapter about Daryl Morey right in into this book that in a way it was foreign to it, but in a way utterly fascinating.
1: Yeah. It's a neat window into the bigger story, right? It's a, it's you, When you're writing about ideas, you kind of want to put human faces to them and you want people to understand the stakes and the consequences. And um, there are a few stories that I could find uh, with greater stakes or consequences than the Wallenberg story. I mean, it's, a, it's an odd thing, I think, that um, you know t- the, the two people who have really endured from the Holocaust are um, Oscar Schindler and Anne Frank, and yet, um, I think more people should know the name of Raul Wallenberg. So hopefully, people who read this book won't really forget his name.
2: Do you have any relationship to Wallenberg personally? No. I mean, you know, probably somewhere down the line, but not that I know of, no. Well, I was moved by the story. I mean I knew the story of Wallenberg, but nevertheless your recounting of it I thought it was brilliant.
1: Well I'm very happy to hear
0: it. Back to basketball a little bit. You know, sometimes you hear about certain shooters and the people go, He's a streak shooter and then other people are just like, you know, he's a quality shooter. He's 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 really good. Is everybody a streak shooter or
1: well, I think everybody has streaks in them, right? I mean, some people are defined by those streaks, um, or that's like the best thing that they can do, or the most recognizable thing they can do. So that's why they are college shooters. But, but I think, you know, even good shooters have streaks, and, and those streaks, I think, can sort of change everything for them. I mean, Steph Curry is the greatest shooter in the history of the planet, but there are times when he gets hot. And in fact, um, the game that he still says is the hottest is really the game that changed his life and it changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors and the future of the entire NBA. Tell the story of that game. That's at the beginning of the book. Yeah, it's a, it, was, it was a game against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden in February 2013. And Steph Curry scored 54 points. He made 11 of his 13 three-pointers. It's still the most points he's scored in a game to this day. And yet, if you were to ask him a few minutes before the game, is this a game that you are going to play well, let alone you know play the greatest game of your life? He probably would have said no, because um, the night before the Golden State Warriors had been in a fight, uh, Steph Curry uh, was fined thirty five thousand dollars for his role in this fight instead of being suspended. But never has anyone been so fortunate to lose so much money because when they got to Madison Square Garden, the Warriors had no choice but to just unleash him and and hope that it was a night that he got hot. He played all forty eight minutes.
0: Was that the fight with the was that the fight with the Indiana Pacers or something?
1: It was. It was not that the most famous the Pacers anarchist. type, but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, but it was in Indiana. Yeah, but but um, but amazingly enough, even just getting to Madison Square Garden was a problem. Steph Curry usually takes the second bus from the team hotel to the other to the road arena. On this day, for some reason he can't remember, he took the third bus. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the team hotel? It gets pulled over by New York City cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. So he is late. He's rushed he's $35,000 poorer, he's probably in a terrible mood, right? And yet he still goes out and has the game of his life. And um, I, I, I think it's sort of similar to Shakespeare in that sense, is that you never really know when it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Those are the words of Steph Curry, actually. Once it happens, you have to embrace it. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it.
2: Do you think that superstition is a part of the streak?
1: I don't think so. It's not really an idea I explored in the book just because I'm not sure there's all that much scientific research to it. I mean, I think that there's clearly um, like this placebo effect of confidence, right? If you feel more likely um, to do something, maybe you are slightly more likely, and it certainly doesn't hurt. But I think the more powerful force is this idea of resources becoming available to you. There's a power of the hot hand in that like you have license to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily get to do. And sometimes you shouldn't do those things because they're bad ideas, but sometimes you should do those things and just the world hasn't caught up to them yet. Right. And so um, I think that like, you know, if, if the hot hand Um, warps the behavior of everybody around you. It also changes um, the outsider's perception of you. And Sometimes, um, if people think differently about you, they allow you to do different things. Mm -hmm. Success kind of begets success. That's what I think of as sort of the simplest power of this force.
2: Yet, you talk about him uh, normally taking the second bus. Wasn't that a superstition of his?
1: Oh that's interesting. I mean I think it was more routine, right? Um and I think that like part of circumstance breaking your way is putting yourself in a position for that circumstance to break your way. So yes, like the second bus, but that was also a function of like when he needs to shoot before a game. And if he thinks that he needs like an hour and a half to get ready, then you take the second bus instead of the first or the third. Like it's not like he didn't he didn't he actually didn't change after that game. It wasn't like he decided to start taking the third bus after scoring 54 points. He went right back to the second bus. But I do think like, of course, like superstition is this huge force, especially among professional athletes. I mean, you walk into a locker room before the game and you're surrounded by superstition. I just don't know that it has a huge effect on whether or not you get hot. Mm-hmm.
0: And this goes for like teams as well, not just individuals, right? Is it the same? The concept? superstition part.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the hot no, hand is the more streaks, of an individual. The win, the winning. Sure. Streak. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, but I, I think it's more of an individual um, pursuit. I mean, clearly teams can get hot. I, I just think it's a slightly different phenomenon that's happening I, i'm not sure that winning mm-hmm. one game makes you more likely to win your next game i think that like individually there are things that become available to you um but certainly those are some of the things that um that we think of right we th- the, the the longest winning streaks and and championship streaks i mean it, it it sort of goes to show um how much our minds are sort of like programmed to look for patterns and to to, to recognize the importance of shrieks.
0: Well, what do you think of like when people say shooting is contagious or hitting is contagious in in baseball? Is this is this related, or is this a whole other phenomenon to write a book about?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's an entirely new phenomenon. I, I don't think it's quite related to to this one. I mean, you know, maybe they're like distant cousins. They see each other at the family reunion sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. But uh, isn't Curry very superstitious about uh, the routine that he goes through? Oh yeah,
1: no, he's I mean I think he sticks to he tries to stick to the same routine every time, which is why being thrown off it was so disturbing and it's why he remembers that, right? It's not just because he had the game of his life. I mean, he he remembers missing a bus 8 years later because um he never misses the bus. It's it's why like if you um if you have a paper route and um you know, you decide to change that paper route one day and something miraculous happens, of course you would you would notice that shift in behavior.
2: Well, we could call it superstition. We
1: sure. could call it ritual.
0: Okay. Well, the magic question is: the hot hand real
1: or or not? You have to you have to pay to read the book to find out. No, I, I think generally. Uh-huh. Spoiler alert! I think that there is a hot hand in certain situations, and uh, you are right to believe in it. But um, it's also important to recognize when there is no such thing as the hot hand. And so, um, so this book is about the quest to understand the idea, but really every aspect of the idea. I, th- I think it's important to play around with the idea for yourself and figure out where you land on it. Uh, because I think that like, what we believe about the hot hand is important, but also how we behave when it comes to the hot hand is equally important. And mm. I think that the book um, sort of explores every part of this idea and presents all the evidence that you could need to come to a conclusion of your own. And there are really smart people who come to completely opposite conclusions about this.
0: Well, maybe... Maybe your hot hand is going to start with this book. I hope so. I hope so. That would be nice. Do you have any, any, um, any other conclusions before we wrap this up?
1: No I, I, I just I hope people read the book with an open mind and just sort of go in and and you know think about the idea and also enjoy the stories because I think this the stories um, are are very fun to read and, and kind of breezy to read and hopefully um, you know there's not too much academic mumbo jumbo in there and hopefully the human faces make it um, fun to read it, it, I, it does, I don't think it feels like homework I think maybe you guys could support me on that one.
2: Oh, for sure for sure my question is. Do you believe in luck?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's like a hugely important thing. And how would you define it? You know, I don't know about that. I just think that like there there are so many, even being at the Wall Street Journal was like a super lucky break for me. And it it happened because of forces beyond my control that I could never replicate again. So I think that like luck is like, I I think probably the most important force in life. It's just a matter of what you do with it afterwards, right?
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Ben. This was fascinating. Thank you for having me, guys. I
0: appreciate it. Everybody, if you're interested in the book, you can listen to it on Audible like us or get it get it everywhere. Is there a website uh, for the book?
1: Oh, you can just go to my personal website, BZ, B as in boy, Z as in zebra, Cohen at uh, just BZCohen.com. And it's available wherever books are sold. Fantastic. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.
0: From today's machining world, this is a Swarfcast production. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to see extended video interviews and join our mailing list. I'm Noah Graff. Our audio engineer is Bill Steffi. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information on todaysmachiningworld.com.